When I said to Maharaji, how do I get enlightened? He said, feed people. When I said, how do I become free? He said, serve people. It's as if I'm giving vitamins to my heart of compassion, to the, to the innate generosity that has been armored for so long. Welcome to a Voices of Esalen Archive edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today we present a talk given by Ramdas at the Esalen Institute on October 18th, 1987. Initially famous for being part of the Timothy Leary-led LSD revolution at Harvard in the early 1960s, he was also well known for his book Be Here Now, a kind of illustrated countercultural Bible of sorts written in 1971 which drew upon many of the transformative experiences he'd undergone during his spiritual travels in India. Ramdas was also known for his kindness, his leadership, and the inventive foundations he started, notably the Seva Foundation, which he speaks about in depth during this lecture. It was created in 1978 with the intention of helping to alleviate blindness in India, Nepal, and other developing countries. He also created the Dying Project in 1986, aligned around the concept of conscious shifting into another realm. In 2013, Ramdas released a memoir, Polishing the Mirror, How to Live from Your Spiritual Heart. In an interview about the book, he said, now I'm in my 80s, now I'm aging. I'm approaching death. I'm getting closer to the end. Now I really am ready to face the music all around me. Ramdas died December 22nd, 2019, leaving a kind, wild, compassionate, and fruitful legacy. Here's Ramdas at Esalen on October 18th, 1987. At some point in my journey, it has become absolutely clear to me that I will become free through being a full incarnate. My full humanity will be my freedom. And that means honoring all the different parts of my identity. At least acknowledging them, bringing them into consciousness and acting in a way that's harmonious with my deepest understanding of what that's about, why I am with that person or what our relationship. Now, the ones around that were most intimate to me was my father. He was old. My stepmother couldn't easily take care of him fully, and so I, there was a house with a basement apartment. I moved back there to help out. And that one was pretty clear. But as I keep meditating, it's that feeling you have when you walk down the street and you see somebody sitting in a doorway and you want to keep walking. That place of wanting, of feeling like the, the, the line is very delicate. It's an interesting feeling, the feeling that your heart is so compassionate, which all of us is, all of ours are, that were you to give vent to it, you would drown. Because the heart knows no boundaries. The heart doesn't say, here, take a half of it. The heart always says, take it all. Take it all. Take it all. Think not of the lilies of the field. Just take it. Use it. Whatever you need. And the mind is always saying, now, wait a minute. Save for tomorrow. Have you paid your interest? As long as I looked away from anybody, there was a cost. Because I had to leave some energy there to avert my gaze. It's a says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. But wouldn't you prefer to look at joy than to look at suffering? 
Wouldn't you prefer to see your loved ones live than to die? Wouldn't you prefer to see them having happiness rather than pain? See, the criterion is a very difficult one, extremely difficult. I was playing frisbee in Marin on the, one of the nude beaches up at Marin, and I was throwing a frisbee, and the sun was sparkling on the water, and we were having a wonderful time. I was about to throw the frisbee when through my mind went the inscription that's over Gandhi's tomb. It said, think of the poorest person you've ever seen and ask whether your next act will be of any use. Jesus, you're right. Yeah, do you throw the frisbee or don't you? I mean, that's the predicament you and I are in. There are 35,000, 35,000, 39,000, 39,000 beings dying, starving to death every day. I mean, that would decimate this room. <laughs> See, if it was the person next to you that was starving to death, look at how different it would be. But there's some way in which we draw these lines of them. We make it them so that we can go on to do something without having to acknowledge the themness. And I can feel, I could feel that um, I didn't quite know how to get over the barrier between doing something when somebody obviously needed me to do it and pulled it out of me and this more abstract thing where I had to initiate something. I didn't quite know how to do that out of my truth. I mean, I could do it out of looking righteous or something, but it wasn't quite right. I mean, the way I started my anti-nuclear stuff was because I was on speaking tour in Boulder and Allen Ginsberg called me and he said that people from uh, Trump Bacine are going out to meditate out at, at um, the anti-nuclear protest at Rocky Flats. And I can't go because I'm stuck in New York. Would you go with them and help them? And I, and I said, sure. I was waiting for something to happen that naturally pushed me into it. And I found myself sitting there in Azafu in the rain, meditating in the middle of the Rocky Flats uh, one of the Rocky Flats demonstrations. And it was extraordinary, it was like a bee-in. Felt, like felt like the panhandle in the 60s. The only added thing was that everybody was sharing a mutual goal of being an a collective instrument to change the uh, nature of suffering in the world. And so there was an added joy about being together this way. At that moment, Helen Caldicott got up to speak. And I admire Helen a lot. But as I listened to her, I heard her using fear and urgency as the motives to get people to act. Something in me felt, gee, this is old-fashioned. We know more than that now. We know not to do that anymore. Because when you use fear and urgency to get rid of the bomb, you perpetuate in the world fear and urgency. And that's the root of the bomb in the first place. So you're treating the symptom, but not the cause. So if you're going to treat the symptom and the cause, it doesn't mean you don't protest, but it depends on where you're protesting from. This is a big dialogue I've had with Dan Ellsberg over. We did it at Alan Watts' houseboat, we did it at Lama, and we did it at Harvard Medical School. 
So I kept listening for ways that I could be involved in the world. I mean, I write checks all the time. We all do that, you know. You get the mail is like this. Of, I mean, it's the seals reaching out to you and the battered this isn't that's and everything, you know. And it's and you just go through and you've got to trust your intuition. There's no rational way you can do it. You can't say whales are worth fifty dollars and uh, Amnesty International is worth a hundred, therefore, and that puts Oxfam at about thirty-three. I mean, you can't do it that way. You just got to. You know somebody in it, or you intuitively feel you like their newsletter or something, and something go. So it was in 1978. Um, Larry Brilliant called me. He had been in India with me, and he had met Maharaji. This is his story of meeting Maharaji. He was a doctor. He had been um, with the hog farm in Berkeley. He was Doctor America during the times of all that stuff. And then uh, his wife had come to India and met Maharaji, and then she went back and got him. My wife had met Maharaji and had come to get me in America and bring me back to meet him. When we first went to see Maharaji, I was put off by what I saw. All these crazy Westerners wearing white clothes and hanging around this fat old man in a blanket. More than anything else, I hated seeing Westerners touch his feet. On my first day there, he totally ignored me. But after the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh day, during which he also ignored me, I began to grow very upset. I felt no love for him. In fact, I felt nothing. I decided that my wife had been captured by some crazy cult. By the end of the week, I was ready to leave. We were staying at the hotel up in Nanital, and on the eighth day, I told my wife that I wasn't feeling well. I spent the day walking around the lake thinking that if my wife was so involved in something that was clearly not for me, it must mean that our marriage was at an end. I looked at the flowers, the mountains, the reflections in the lake, but nothing could dispel my depression. Then I did something I'd really never done in my adult life. I prayed. I asked God, what am I doing here? Who is this man? These people are all crazy. I don't belong here. Just then I remembered the phrase, had ye but faith, ye would not need miracles. Okay, God, I don't have any faith. Send me a miracle. <laughs> I kept looking for a rainbow, but nothing happened. So I decided to leave the next day. The next morning, we took a taxi down to Kenshi to the temple to say goodbye. Although I didn't like Maharaji, I thought I'd just be very honest and have it out with him. We got to Kenshi before anyone else was there, and we sat in front of his tucket, his wooden bed on the porch. Maharaji had not yet come out from inside the room. There was some fruit on the tucket, and one of the apples had fallen on the ground, so I bent over to pick it up. Just then, Maharaji came out of his room and stepped on my hand, <laughs> pinning me to the ground. So there I was on my knees, touching his foot. In that position, I detested. How ludicrous. He looked down at me, and he asked, where were you yesterday? <laughs> were you at the lake? He said the word lake in English. When he said the word lake to me, I began to get this strange feeling at the base of my spine. My whole body tingled. It felt very strange. What were you doing at the lake? I began to feel very tight. Were you horseback riding? No. Were you boating? No. Did you go swimming? No. Then he leaned over and he spoke very quietly. Were you talking to God? 
ask for something. When he did that, I fell apart and started to cry like a baby. He pulled me over and started pulling my beard, repeating, Did you ask for something? Did you ask for something? <laughs> that really felt like my initiation. By then, others had arrived, and they were around me, caressing me. And I realized then that almost everyone there had gone through some experience like that, a trivial question such as, were you at the lake yesterday, which had no meaning to anyone else, shattered my perception of reality. After that, I just wanted to rub his feet. <laughs> well, um, Maharaji didn't let him rub, uh, rub his feet very much because almost immediately, the minute he'd hooked him, by these gross means, because um, miracles are really kind of low-level gross stuff. <laughs> I mean, Maharaji says they're for children. Um, he immediately said to, to, to uh, Larry, he said, you and oh, doctor. What Larry heard, since it was a language translation, all he heard, you are no doctor, which is what his mother had been saying to him for years. I mean, he grew up, he grew up in Detroit, and he never made a living, and he was a hog farm doctor and stuff like that. And he, he, was, he had also been with doctors for Cuba back in the political act of Berkeley Day. Uh, so he had a long FBI file and stuff like that. So it turned out that Maharaji wasn't saying you are no doctor, he was saying UNO doctor, United Nations Organization doctor. He'd say UNO doctor, go. So Larry was a doctor and he heard there was a United Nations Organization project going on about smallpox. So he went to Delhi to apply to the uh, World Health Organization. And WHO took one look at this guy with long hair, a long beard, and Indian clothes. Don't call us, we'll call you. So he goes back up the mountain. This is an eight-hour bus trip. And he goes back up, and he gets to Maharaji, and he tells Maharaji the story of Mark. And um, Maharaji says, you and O doctor, go. So he starts to go down the mountain again, and he goes to the place. And this time, he's put on a suit. And he talks to them and starts to be friendly, but they still say, we have nothing for you. And he gets on the bus and goes back. He gets back up to Maharaji, tells him the whole story. Maharaji said, you went, oh, doctor, go. This went on and on. He cut his beard. He got necktie. He did the whole business. Finally, they just got to feel so pathetic. He said to them, give me anything. It doesn't have to be a doctor's job just to get him off my back. <laughs> Larry was going back and forth up this mountain on these buses that have no springs. And it's quite a trip. So finally they said, we don't have a doctor's role, but we have a role for an administrator. He says, I'll take it. So they said, well, there's only one more thing you need. And what's that? A security clearance. A security clearance? My god, how am I going to get a security clearance? I didn't know you needed for the World Health Organization to be a doctor in a developing. Yes, you need a security clearance. Well, so Larry goes back up. Now he's convinced he's not going to work for UNO and that this guy is a phony. So he comes up and he goes to Maharaji and he tells him the whole story. He says, they, there's no chance. Maharaji says, who, uh, who takes care of that? Who, saw, who, who gives that uh, clearance? La Larry couldn't think of who that could be, but he decided it must be the Surgeon General for the medical community. So he says the Surgeon General, and the person he gives it to is Mr. Henderson, who's head of the smallpox. He's the one that's got to get it. 
So Maharaji goes under his blanket and he comes out to the edge and he says, how do you spell Henderson? <laughs> Larry says H, it's translated into Hindi, you know, A-N-D-E-R. And Maharaji's cackling inside the blanket. And then Maharaji comes, puts the blanket back, and he says, you want to know, doctor, go. Now, at, <laughs> this is pushing you, I mean. At the moment that they're living out this little uh, grade B movie, H-E-N-D, <laughs> at that moment there is a cocktail party, party going on in Switzerland. It's at the UNO, uh, United Nations uh, headquarters. And uh, Dr. Henderson is entertaining the Surgeon General. The Surgeon General says to Henderson, you're running this big international smallpox program. How are all the countries doing? He says, well, the Russians are doing this, and the, and the, you know, the Germans are doing this, and, and so on. And he listed all the different people. And, Hend and the Surgeon General says, well, what are we doing? Well, he said, we're providing some administration. We're not doing a hell of a lot. He said, you know, um, we're getting this kid, um, this um, doctor, young doctor and his administrator, uh, but uh, he's being held up because he needs security clearance. So the Surgeon General says, well, who gives him that? Henderson says, you do. So the Surgeon General says, got a napkin? He takes the cocktail and he says, what's his name? Brilliant. Dr. Brilliant has security clearance, and he signs his name. H-E-N-D-E, -E. okay? So Larry comes back, and he goes to work for, um, of course, and pretty soon he's out in the field, and the stories are just incredible about, because they, the enemy is smallpox, and they're getting down to the last cases of it in the whole world, and when it's gone, it'll never exist again, because it's a humanly transmitted disease, so they've got, these maps of Bangladesh and Africa and all, and wherever a new case comes, they move in with helicopters and jeeps, and everybody's inoculated all the area around to keep it from spreading. And because if one person that's carrying it goes to a train station, everybody in the train station, and then they'd go back to 300 villages and they'd lose it. So they gotta really tighten in on it. Just one story about it. They come to one village where it is against the will of God to fight smallpox. Smallpox is a gift of God. And there's a case of smallpox in this town. And so Larry, who has always respected other people's right to their religious preferences, realizes that if he doesn't act along with the UNO group to go in to do this raid to inoculate everybody, and they're going to have to fight them because they are going to protect the will of God. And he realizes that he will make the choice to do this because of the amount of suffering that smallpox brings to the world, and he will do that. So they make a midnight raid, and they have to beat down the door of the chief and all the people are standing around, and they wrestle the chief to the ground, and they vaccinate him. And then they wrestle his wife to the ground, and she bites the doctor, and they vaccinate her. And they wrestle all the children, and they vaccinate them, and all the villagers are standing around. And the uh, elder, the chief, gets up, and they all stand up, and they're all embarrassed, you know, about this whole thing. And the chief turns, and he walks out in the garden, and he picks a loki, a squash, one of the only squash in the garden. 
and he brings it in and he hands it to the head doctor. Larry is, can't figure this out. He said, what's that about? The translator asks and the, the chief says, it was our belief that smallpox was the gift of God. We defended that belief as with whatever energy we could. There were many of you and there were few of us. So our loss is not, there's no shame in that. You believe that the vaccination is the gift of God. You acted in honoring that. Now you are a guest in my home. I'm sorry that I don't have more to offer you. Feel the flip. Feel the way in which you oppose, but don't put another being out of your heart. That you keep the, I mean, you begin to understand the exquisiteness of what the whole structure of Dharma is in India. It helps people do that. It helps people keep perspective about the, the way they are in the game. They were, the charge was, they finally got rid of the last case of smallpox, by the way. There's no more, in the, you know, all the vaccinations you got as a child, you don't have to ever get them again. All those cards and borders, that's all gone. That's all because of that. It's the only disease, human disease, they ever did it to. And Larry worked under a woman, Nicole Grisset, who was an incredible Swiss doctor who got, she was like the Zaza Gabor of the, of the international health field. And she just got things done. She just walked, talked everybody out. And she always was in high heels out in the field, you know, in Africa, and, you know, she's smoking, chain smoker, very attractive woman, silk stockings out in the field. She led the charge and drove them all until they were in ecstasy together. And there were all these wonderful people working together. And when it was over, none of them wanted to, what were you going to do as an act to follow that? I mean, that's like, it's like the charge of the Light Brigade. It's a full encounter. And they all went back to things like the Center for Disease Control at the University of Michigan to teach or different things like that. Ned Willard, who's one of your dishwashers here, was. Uh, he was the information officer, the chief information officer for the World Health Organization for many years. He just retired this year to a job as a dishwasher at Esalen. And uh, uh, he was one of these people involved in that. So Larry suddenly realized that the quality of all of them working together to do something about suffering was what engaged him in a way that he would never have been engaged doing it on his own. So he called together a group of people, and the money for the first meeting was put up by one of the people he had been in India with, Bob Friedland, and another fellow named Steve Jobs, who started Apple Computer, who also had gone and seen my guru at one point. And the meeting was held in Michigan, and there was a bizarre moment in the meeting, because he said, we're having a meeting of a new organization called Seva. Now, to some of us, he said, Seva is the Sanskrit word for service doing sewa or seva. But to others of his colleagues, like from the National Institute of Health and things, he said, this is the Society for Epidemiological and Voluntary Assistance. <laughs> it's an acronym. Yeah. So some of them came to a meeting of the Society for okay, Epidemiological and Voluntary Assistance, and some came to seva. And there was a moment at 9 o'clock the first morning at this inn in Michigan, where we were snowbound for three days, of this man coming in with a three-piece suit, gray suit, and a dispatch case, and sitting down at the conference table and opening the dispatch case. He is ready for a 9 o'clock meeting. They, we all came late the night before. 
of the society. And he becomes aware, I'm sitting across the way, and he nods to me, and he becomes aware that somebody's sitting next to him. And he turns his head, and there is Wavy Gravy, <laughs> who is sitting there with a clown face on and a propeller in his head. <laughs> because Larry had drawn from his hippie days, from his India days, pulled me in from his India days, from his, and he just brought all the people he would love to work with together. And then Nicole was one of these people, as was a doctor from India, an incredible um, um, eye surgeon whose hands are gnarled like this. He's got arthritis. He has special instruments for operating. And he's one of the leading surgeons with these hands. The Venkata Swami, great Aurobindo devotee. So we had this meeting. And it took us about three days, because we all came out of such different um, ambiences, such different ways of being. We all realized that we love to serve other human beings. We really liked ending suffering. And yet we came out of it from such different ways. I mean, Center for Disease Control dealing with the worm in Africa with huge research projects and big budgets and so on. And then Wavy, who sees somebody on the street and goes and gets them a shower. And could we work together? I mean, what would it be like? And we started under Nicole's banner, because she said, I think now that we finish with smallpox, I'd like to take on blindness. Because 80% of the blindness in the world is preventable or curable. So she said, why don't we just get rid of that 80% since we're about it, while we're about it? So we said, okay. It's an interesting project. And I didn't care. I had no brief for that project. I just went along to be with the group. Then the country of Nepal said, perhaps you'd like to come and work on our blindness problem. So we went to Nepal to work on the blindness problem at their invitation and did a huge research project to find out what the needs were of the community with World Health Organization funds, and we just arranged to make it happen, and we became sort of an instrument for the process to go. And it took us about three or four years to become an NGO, meaning a non-governmental organization, so that we deal directly with the king now. I mean, we're like the Red Cross or something like that. We first worked under the umbrella of WHO. There were, uh, when we arrived, there were 15 eye doctors in Nepal, most of them living in the city of Kathmandu, dealing with wealthy patients. The pay scale was abominable. There were 300,000 blind people, quarter of a million blind people, who were waiting for a cataract operation that took four minutes and cost, at those times, $5. Some of those people had been waiting 10 years and were blind in an economy where if you can't see, that's it, because you're just a drain on the family, and they can't afford you. I mean, they may love you, but they can't afford you just from hand to mouth anyway, and it's one more mouth. And so most people that go blind die after some years just from neglect or just pulling away or dying themselves, I guess you'd say. So <clears throat> we figured, well, with Western know-how, and all of our pizzazz, we can really do a job here, helping the Nepalis get rid of their blindness problem, let alone all the children blindness problems. I mean, xerophthalmia, where the eyeball melts within about five days after an infection. 
and uh, all the vitamin deficiencies, because most of the eye problems are caused because they don't get enough vitamin A. And the leafy green vegetables, they don't grow, they don't eat them. In fact, since women are treated as subservient or lower than men in the chain, the men get the meat and the women get the leafy green vegetables, so their eyes are better than the men's. Okay, that's an interesting twist of fate, isn't it? A karmuppance. <laughs> so at any rate, we um, started to work in Nepal in about 1980. And we had a five-year project to get rid of all the preventable and curable blindness in Nepal. There were 25,000 new cases of blindness every year of cataract. In the first five years, we didn't meet 25,000 a year operations, which you'd need just to stay even, let alone getting rid of the backlog of 300,000. Of course, some of them are just dying naturally anyway, so if you just wait long enough, they'll all die. What we've learned from that, well, what we've learned is at the end of the five years, we started the second five years, we've learned patience is one thing we've learned. For me, out of the 60s, which was a hit-and-run type place, I mean, my whole thing was suggest an idea to the culture, and if it bought it, fine, and if not, well, see you around, and we'll go on to something else. I mean, I've advocated a private prison that could be a yoga institute. Uh, beautiful idea. I nearly convinced the governor of Alaska. Uh, and just rent space to the state and federal government and then the dying centers and all these different little games and you sort of run one up and see if anybody wants to play and then you start it or not. And so I had never learned patience to stay with something knowing you're going to be staying with it for years. I mean, I stay with my father, but that's my karma. I mean, I, my father's a given. But the Seva Foundation isn't a given, or Nepal isn't a given, and I can say, well, we got it over our heads and our estimates, see you around. It's not to be. But I began to learn something that we collectively, as a group, were wiser than I was alone. Because it turned out right at the beginning, there was a real knockdown, drag out polarity in our group between what you call the beers and the doers. The doers were like Nicole. She just said, screw it all, let's get it done. You go, everybody would be furious and angry and sparks are flying, and she just goes and gets it done. She says, damn the cost, the end justifies the means. Then there are people like me who never get any ends. We are just totally preoccupied with the mean. It's how you feel. You know, if you're not feeling right, don't cook the meal. But what about the guests? Well, they'll be hungry. It's don't move faster than your wagon train of being, or you're going to get into trouble. You're going to get back into the doing trap that everybody's stuck in. I mean, I have good justification for my position. It's not as, you know. So there were the beers and the doers, and there was this wild fight. I mean, Nicole and I would square off, really. Quotes from the Bible and everything. And all I saw, as painful as it all was, was that I was growing, that I had something to learn at Nicole's feet. And she, as time went on, realized that she wanted to learn something, too. And what we've had of the 15 people we've been together 
Every time we get together for a meeting, the first thing we do is get straight with each other. And that may take anywhere from a half a day to two days before we discuss any budgets, plans, business, anything. We're now in Nepal, India, Guatemala, with the American Indians in South Dakota, reforestation in South America. And we got lots of street projects and things through our little service group. But when we meet, all that stuff's waiting. Staff, all that stuff. We stop and we go around the circle. What's been happening with you? Are we all clear with each other? Two businessmen who have business dealings aside from the board and didn't do too well with each other. They come in, but with the, well, we'll put that aside because we're here at the board meeting. Can't put it aside. Because what we saw was the possibility that the board could function as a consciousness, acknowledging all the richness of all of the variety, but being a consciousness. And in order to do that, we had to really offer a lot of truth about ourselves into it. And a lot of people weren't quite ready to play by those rules, and I wasn't but willing to play by any other rule. And we are doing it, and it is far out. It goes from a board meeting where, oh God, I've got to go to another board meeting, to, oh, I can't wait to get to that board meeting. Because it's the family. And it's the family built around caring. And it's as far out we pay, for, we pay our way to our own board meetings, we pay our room and board by ourselves. I mean, we're, it's fun. We're just learning how to stretch ourselves and the joy of collaborating together around caring to relieve suffering. That's our creator, to just help relieve suffering and wavy at it to have fun doing it. And I add to grow in the process. But that's inevitable. So after we had done all this stuff for four or five years, do you mind hearing the story? It's, 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 you know, um, I know why I'm telling you. <laughs> after we've been doing it for four or five years, we began aware, became aware of how many people in our culture had done that thing of veil the suffering in the world of them, that suffering in the world, in order to be able to live a sane life with a heart open. And they, they were ready to reach out for something. They wanted to involve themselves, but many of them didn't know how to do it. Because they'd go to big organizations and it would feel really organizational crummy. Or they'd try to go overseas, but they had no skills. Well, they didn't know how to look on the laundromat wall for a sign that blind man needs reader for their mail or something just right around or the, or the, the convalescent home down the block that would need somebody to sit with people as they die or something like that. Or the food kitchens or whatever. And we started, we realized we couldn't become a service to put everybody together. That was too, we thought about it, it was too complicated uh, as a computer program keep it updated. So one of the first things I did was um, I wrote this book with Paul Gorman called How Can I Help? Which was dealing with the issue of how do you get into helping and once you're in it, how do you stay in it without burning out? And helping involves, since Paul was uh, used to write speeches for McGovern and he wrote speeches for congressmen for many years and he had a radio show on WBAI in New York for about 13 years and 
He's now vice president of St. John the Divine Church in New York. And uh, it was a hard book to write because his father was the managing editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And this was Paul's first book. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> that was a tough birth. That took 18 months anyway. And then we decided if we were having so much fun as a group like this, why not proliferate these groups? Why not help other people? You know, a lot of people are feeling the same thing. If we could just help network them, they could get together and they could figure out a project just like we figured out a project. Because what we learned from, well, thus far what we've learned is one thing. Never back a project, only back a human heart. When somebody has a forestry project, we meet the director. We often bring them in. We bring in the people from Guatemala. We bring in the people from Nepal. We get to know them. We are with them. Are they people who share our appreciation of the universe in that way? Do we want to play together as friends? Because often we learn we back projects because the project looks exquisite, but the people's motives in it make it uh, problems all the way and bad vibrations and all that stuff. So when I went on tour, um, each city I go to, I asked the people if they would be interested in finding other people of like mind to have a service satsang, a service sangha, a group to get together to, to relieve suffering in the world, but to grow through doing it. So they would help each other grow through service. Use it as a yoga, the yoga of service, which is what Hanuman and Maharaji. When I said to Maharaji, how do I get enlightened? He said, feed people. I said, how do I become free? He said, serve people. It was very simple. He didn't tell me to meditate or anything. He just said, feed people and serve people. So I saw it as a yoga. And I see that we in Seva are using it as a yoga. We're using it to get clearer, straighter, lighter, more present with one another. And in the process, we are doing stuff in Nepal and India, etc., etc. So we started these groups. People would sign up, 300 people would sign up in a city. And then we'd call the groups together and they'd start meeting and then we started to send the material to help them get going. They're not saver groups because we don't want to be policemen. So they're just service stations. And we just service the service stations. We've got 30 of them going now, 29. And we've got 29 more cities waiting. But we've got to soup it up a lot. And what we've been playing with is just saying, and starting to have these kind of meetings together just to say, if the dream that existed in the 60s, if we were perhaps ready to dream again, dream again about the possibility that consciousness and love could color social action. And at this moment, in my service stuff, I'm not invited by colleges much, but I'm invited by high schools a lot. And I can feel these pendulum swings from the kind of sentimentality of a Reagan and a media to compassion, which is a whole different realm. Sentimentality and compassion are very different things. The Grateful Dead raises money for Seva now. Bobby, where with Save a T-shirts on stage. We sell Save a T-shirts at all the concerts. They did one concert with a band up in Toronto, and out of it comes a whole hospital because it's doubled by the Canadian government. 
$80,000. That's fun, isn't it? And everybody goes to dance. Just learning how to play. Last year, for the past two years, I've been chairman of the board. I just retired, or I just got voted out. <laughs> we, we rotate, actually. So. And I found myself at one point in Nepal as chairman of the board to deal with the government of Nepal. And this is very strange to be in this role. I mean, it's one thing. I'm, hi, who's, who's chairman? Well, I'm chairman this time, you know. And you, you, you don't use it as nothing, but here I was as chairman with my blue blazer and my, you know, preppy-looking tie. And, and I'm there because we're coming in big guns with the government, and we are working only to support the Nepali doctors, by the way, because our game is to empower them, not to take over and to do it, because it'd be nice in a few years to leave the Nepalis really strong and self-sufficient. So we, don't, we only have one employee over there. All the rest of our employees are Nepalis. So I was to help the bureaucracy see that it might be good to loosen the laws about who could do certain kinds of surgery so that we could train a special cadre of ophthalmic assistants who would do the work that usually only an ophthalmologist can do, which we don't have enough of. And this is very simple stuff like pulling eyelids out of the eye and stuff like that. But the Nepal government wants to look good in the eyes of the international health world. So they don't want to lower their standards. Can you hear the issue? So I'm there to get them to lower their standards. He's there because I'm the chairman of a board of a granting agency from America. That's like meeting Santa Claus. And they live almost totally on, on aid from other countries. It's the third poorest country in the world, I think. So we met, and I was very nervous about this meeting because I had to play, I mean, things depended on it. I had to play my game role well, you know. And I had to, as Don once says, huff and puff and make believe it mattered. So I sat opposite him, and of course he was a little surprised. I mean, we had tea and all of our people had tea. He was a little surprised because I had my beads. I mean, he hadn't met a chairman of a board from a Western country with beads. And then when he found out my name was Ramdas, and remember Nepal is still a Hindu country, although there's a lot of Buddhists in it, he um, was taken aback a second time. And so we were just about to start the dialogue about what we both wanted, in a charming way, of course, when our eyes met. And the thing was, our eyes really met. We really stopped for a moment and recognized one another as fellow beings. And at that moment, his ministerialness was just what he was wearing, and my chairman-ish was just what I was wearing. And the game board lay before us, and there was Park Place and Marvin Gardens and B&O and all of that stuff. And he was gonna be the thimble, and I was gonna be the iron. And away we went, and we played and played and played. But every bit of our play of his giving a little this if I would make sure that there were books for the new library and they'd give this if I, it was just bizarre. And all of it was bringing us closer and closer and closer together. Because from the place we met, we both saw each other's predicament. And we were both on our side and each other's side at the same moment. 
and then we were looking for an equitable thing that we could all afford and play together. And it was such a beautiful moment for me because it was a situation in which my history would have entrapped me in my role. And his eyes helped me out of it. His compassion brought me out of being trapped in my role so that we could play together as a dance, as a game, as a sweet thing, as a sweet dance. So what I guess I'm finding is that working with a group of people to relieve suffering fulfills something very, very deep in my heart. It's as if I'm giving vitamins to my heart of compassion, to the, to the innate generosity that has been armored for so long. Because I wouldn't know what to do when I went to Nepal. I go to a temple. But now I'm with people who walk in and suddenly there are clinics and there are this and there's that. And I am learning so much from them and even having to play the part of doing it. Not just watching them do it, but actually getting in like when I go to Nepal and going and making site visits and making decisions about land and this isn't that. Giving awards to the ophthalmic assistants out in the bush. And I just, uh, I think that when we look at what qualities, when I was with Kalu Rinpoche, who's a very, very beautiful Tibetan Lama, extremely beautiful man. He and I love each other very, very much. And I came into his room and he kept putting scarves on me. <laughs> they got in great deals of gauze. He kept putting scarves. And then I said to him, Rinpoche, what should I do in life? Because I come to him because he was teaching a um, retreat in which he was giving a wong. And I was not going to take the wong because the wong involves, that's a ceremony, it involves giving you a mantra that you're then supposed to do. And I knew I wasn't going to do it, and it didn't feel right to take the ceremony. So I went to him and I told him that. He said, don't be silly, you can take the wong. He said, every time you think of your guru, you do all the mantras. He was honoring my method, which is the method of guru kripa, or grace of the guru. He said, you only have three things to do this lifetime. Honor your guru, deepen your emptiness, and deepen your compassion. God demands complete surrender as the only freedom that is worth having. But when you do, you find yourself in the service of all that exists. It becomes your joy and recreation. You never tire of it. Just the, the whole quality of letting service go from I am serving in order to come closer to the one. Then the next stage is I am an instrument of the one. That's Aurobindo's thing. I am an instrument of the one. And then the final stage, I am the one. But you don't say that because you are. Hanuman, the monkey, at one point is sitting with Ram, and Ram says to Hanuman, who are you, Hanuman? Hanuman says, when I don't know who I am, I serve you. When I know who I am, I am you. So there are moments when you will find yourself in service, where you disappear, there is just the service. When I took care of my father, just a couple of more minutes. I'm sorry, I got talking. <laughs> well, you had to sit and look at each other's eyes. Um, 
May I have a few more minutes? When, um, when I started taking care of my father, at that time, uh, there was a need for somebody to help get him up every day and get him uh, bathed and all that. And so I took on that job for a period of time. And I, I don't do that now, but I did then. And every morning the job was roughly the same thing. Walking in, morning dad, taking his blood pressure, getting his feet over the side of the bed, getting him up on his walker, helping him walk into the bathroom, getting his pajamas off, brushing his bridge, having him brush the teeth, then getting him in the shower, helping him into the shower, uh, soaping him, washing him, drying him, dressing him, sitting him down in the toilet seat, combing his hair, all that socks, shoes, everything, onto the walker, into the kitchen, prepare breakfast, offer it to him, make sure he's eating it, it's getting to his mouth, and all that sort of thing. Finish, give him his insulin shot, his pills, prepare his pills for later in the day, walk him on the walker back into the study, get him into his comfortable lounge chair, his feet up, give him a cigar if that's what he wants, and that's it. And that takes about two hours. So that was my gig. So during that time, I had come back from um, Burma, where I had um, started at the end of my stay in Burma a diary. And it was a diary of the ways I would trip out on life, to watch myself tripping out. So in this diary, over the days that I was taking care of my father, I would notice that one day I would come up to take care of him, and I note in my diary that I was busy being a dutiful son. That's what I felt like. Dutiful son helping out old dad. And I'd feel myself being that through the whole operation, and there was old dad and I was dutiful son. But then the next day, I'd be in an entirely different space. And I would be a wise spiritual person helping this neophyte. Dad, age isn't so bad. <laughs> He's used to rum dum by now. I mean, he doesn't buy me. He's too serious. <laughs> then there were other days where uh, I was impatient because I had something to do. Dad, could you walk a little faster? You know, that kind of thing took me weeks of watching the different ways my mind would make a scenario out of the same set of phenomena every day. Saw so my mind doing this to me, milking trips, until finally I just kept working and just kept letting go and letting go and letting go until there was just washing. There was just shitting, there was just wiping, there was just brushing, there was just that. It wasn't even somebody helping their father. It wasn't anything, it was just the phenomena. And in that we met. It was as if finally I could hear him because I had stopped being somebody doing something to him. It was the moment where Marie and uh, Viola, and they just, uh, together as fellow beings, just in the tying of the shoe, 
Not I'm tying your shoe, which is keeping us distant. Just in the tying of the shoe. And pretty soon dad's patting me on the back <laughs> and I'm feeling myself getting closer and closer to him through getting rid of the roles and just doing what you do. And you feel what it means to die into service. It's interesting, Gandhi said, when you, when you become zero, your power becomes invincible. See, I don't want there to be an end to my father and I don't want there not to be an end to my father. And I just do my part, that's all. I just do it and I'm learning what it means to do your dharma. Just do your thing impeccably, don't milk it. <laughs> you can if you want to, just watch it. Ah, uh, milking it again. So it seems to me that the art of using service as a vehicle for awakening is an incredible thing. Because it allows you to practice who you see. Who are you serving? You're serving them? Is the person that I visit with AIDS, are you somebody with AIDS? Or are you another being just like me and here we are in this stew together. What's your story? Well, I got AIDS. Well, let me tell you mine. It's the work on who you're dealing with. Who do you deal with in committees? Who do you deal with in the kitchen? Who do you deal with in, in bed? Who do you deal with? you deal with them or him or her or you here, I'm here? Is there an awareness out of which the play happens? We have a set of clown glasses with a nose on the, on the board table for Seva. And anybody that uses the word serious has to put on the clown glasses. So we won't take ourselves too seriously. Because I think it's time to dream again. I really suspect it's time to dream again. It just feels like there's a time to exercise the compassionate heart, and this seems it. And I think unless you practice, you don't get really good at it. Sometimes it's fun to get together with other people who are really good at it and you learn from them. There's a woman in Oakland. We had a Spirit of Service conference this past fall in, in, in the Bay Area, in um, Hayward. And one of the stars of the whole thing was Mother Wright from Berkeley, from Oakland. Mother Wright has 12 children, 25 grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. And she is far out. She feeds 300 people in her home every weekend. And then during every night during the week, she takes blankets and sandwiches and goes out to Jefferson Park in Oakland, which is heavy duty, and delivers them to the people that are there. And she came in and she was just, Lord, I'm so pleased to be here. Amen to all you're doing. She was just fantastic. I got her at the end to sing gospel for us. And we all just, that was the way we ended the conference. She was just the star of the whole, I couldn't give her enough money out of my checkbook. She was that good. Hmm. And one of the things we've been doing is setting up these conferences in different parts of the, we did Vancouver and San Francisco, we're doing LA next spring in New York next year, to celebrate the existing compassion that's in the culture. Just to bring it out of the woodwork and show it to the community. It's like saying, you don't have to learn it, you just have to acknowledge. Instead of, you know, 
see, uh, like two weeks, three weeks ago, I was in People magazine. For those of you who didn't see it, and <laughs> it covers everybody apparently, since nobody's ever mentioned that they saw it. And, and, and 10 million copies went out, so I must know another 10 million people. I mean, somebody else. But it was interesting because they actually wanted to write a nice article about me. And it came out sort of like that. Because, the, I mean, it was nice. It was not hard. I mean, it's so easy to do it again for people, which has an audience that has an attention span of like 20 seconds. I mean, sex and drugs and Harvard and yee, yee. I mean, you can get me all over the place. Which I tell everybody first, but they can make news out of it. But they made it nice, but they couldn't get hold of the subtlety of what this game is in a 20-second hit. So it just was nice. I mean, it's all about blindness, and it's really nice. But I find that coming together with another human being around serving somebody else is an incredibly healing way to be with other human beings. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Lori Putnam, and Shannon Hudson. Our music is by Nico Holliman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and more. You can also find all of our podcasts archived at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. 